0: So I took that to a filth place, like straight off. It's like, fine, it's fine. We'll uh, we, can, we can around. step back
1: from the filth precipice. <laughs> And I'm Ben McKenzie.
0: Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett podcast.
1: Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest.
0: This month we're reading Work Experience Nightmare Mort.
1: And our guest is writer and deputy culture editor for Guardian Australia, Stephanie Convery. Hi, Stephanie. Hi. How's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. You are a big Pratchett fan. A huge Pratchett fan. Tell us how that happened.
2: Uh, So I was in high school in the 90s and around the time I was maybe... 14 or 15, I think, the ABC had started showing the cartoon version of Weird Sisters. And I'd sort of seen a couple of episodes and didn't really know what to make of it because it, I had not I'd not come across Harry Pratchett's work before um, and I didn't have any context for it. And then one day I was in the library at school trying to find something to read and I came across – the Discworld collection and I saw Weird Sisters and I was like, oh, that's that show that I sort of saw that I thought was weird um, because, well, you know, for obvious reasons. And um, though I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to read that one because that's clearly not the first book in the series. So I picked up The Colour of Magic instead and was um, just really surprised by how colourful and kind of adult and also cartoonish it was like that I remember reading a passage where he mentions the whore pits Um like very early on I think he does and I just it, it sort of made me realize that this was an adult book but like connecting to all of that sort of fun fantasy stuff that you're into when you're kids and I was blown away by how imaginative it was and I just got addicted to the books and like just kept reading them, kept collecting them um, and it's made me the woman I am today. (laughs) I needed the smart thing by
0: starting at the beginning, which a few of us did not do. Yeah, right. (laughs) But the
2: people do say that you shouldn't start at the beginning, you should start like maybe 10 books in because that's where he kind of starts to get really good. But I found that, yeah, starting at the beginning meant that you had the whole Rinse Wind arc and you had, you know, it was... You could, you got the introduction to the world in a way that you maybe don't later on.
1: Yeah, well,
0: I read that Mort is the first one he was really happy with, where he started to feel like that's where he hit his stride. So
1: I researched this because there was some controversy about our choice of first book. Right, we started with Men at Arms, which is like the fifteenth one in the series, but it's a you know the feedback has been it is a good starting point, but even he has said in unequivocal terms in one of the essays in one of the collected books, do not start with the color of magic. Like I did not. I was still learning to write, which I think is very harsh on him, because I have a tremendous soft spot for those books, but they just they're, they are a bit different to what comes later, and for a lot of people, Mort is the one that really starts to feel like the Discworld as it goes on.
2: I think he kind of he also he nails the narrative beats later on as well like Mm. i mean i think in mort you can yeah you can really sort of start to see those narrative beats starting to kind of take shape in a way that they don't really in the first couple of books and you know by the end by by you know 30 books in he's kind of got the murder mystery down (laughs) pat and he's got like (laughs) you know he knows how to kind of weave three separate narratives together and um yeah create a really interesting climax yeah Mm. totally i
1: think that someone um, pointed out online that the two first books particularly feel a bit like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and that they're very funny, they're colourful, they've 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 got lots of great stuff in them, but they're really just a collection of things that happen without any particular through line or plot.
0: Yeah, he was saying they're kind of like a vehicle for the jokes until he got to Mort where the jokes are still there, but there's also attached to something that's
2: heading to a place.
1: Yeah. And so did you read them all in order?
2: Uh yeah, I did. As much as possible, I think. Um I mean I I read I think I read the Rincewind ones out I mean, I read them in order, but I read, but because they kind of come in between other ones, I sort of read those before I, and then I went back to the standalone ones. Um, But I kind of, I made it my ambition to collect every single book of his, and I still don't have some of the science of the Discworld ones, like some of the more obscure kind of sideways ones. I don't have, but I have. I mean, yeah, I have all of them, and in various formats and other, all of the main like Discworld ones.
1: he a, he's a kind of inspires collecting, I think
2: I also um, really liked the illustrations by Josh Kirby And they were the ones that were on sale when I was first buying them And So I tried to get as many of those as possible There were new editions coming out as I collected them But those were my favourites I had a calendar of those um, illustrations as well
1: Yeah, they're really um, nice I've got, a, I've got his art book uh, Which I think is called The Garden of Unearthly Delights Which is really... There's a lot of the squirrel illustrations in there and He's just got such a distinctive style uh, which Cal Wilson on our first episode described as titsy. Um, yes. <laughs> which I think is appropriate. Uh, but it does, it does sort of evoke that kind of pulp fantasy, but also is a little bit cartoony. And I think that so suits the, the mood of the disc world.
0: See, it's so strange because when I got into it, it was the second sort of generation of images. Mm. And so I, have an, I these are all quite foreign to me. I, they, it's not how I imagine the characters or the world. So it's kind of a little bit of a culture shock. To sort of hear that,
1: they have not gone back and done new covers for them, apart from the adult ones, which is sort of the the photograph yeah, right. and the, the serious, moody prop photographs. Do
2: well, they, they kind of did that with Harry Potter as well, oh. didn't they? Like they went kind of went back and made them a bit more, yeah, maybe maybe tried to make them look a bit less for you know childreny or whatever. Yeah,
0: so you can read it on the train and not be judged. Yeah. I think
1: <laughs> I would have been like thirteen or fourteen when I was first reading these, and. This, this, I mean, I, I don't think it was inappropriate, but there, there's a lot of adult themes in these books. Totally. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the one we're reading today is all about death. Hmm. We are going to be reading, of course, another book next month. Did you want to tell people anything about that book?
0: Oh, I think we've got it all squared away. We can talk about it later.
1: Okay. All right. That's excellent. Okay. So, the blurb for Mort. Death comes to us all. When he came to Mort, he offered him a job. After being assured that being dead was not compulsory, Mort accepted. However, he soon found that romantic longings did not mix easily with the responsibilities of being Death's apprentice. I like how it sounds creepy, but it's it's a comedy novel.
0: Yeah. Well, because Death is like, he looks the part, like it's, he's so opposite to all the other characters in that he looks the part, but internally he's not quiet, whereas the others don't look the part, but internally are, which is a running thing, like the wizards that, like, igneous cut well he doesn't look like a wizard but but he also no actually no he's a terrible wizard that's a terrible example but um yeah.
1: <laughs> but still a wizard uh i think is the point of him
0: no but he doesn't have the ability to do magic at the end because they keep their magic in their their special place and he's using that for other reasons is implied
1: yes it, it is they do imply that yes <laughs> <laughs> It's, I have to it's, I, now, I, So I took that to a filth place like straight that's off like, fine, <laughs> It's fine, it's fine uh, We go can, go we can step back from the filth precipice <laughs> I
2: think I think what you said at the beginning there I think Pratchett is really kind of concerned With contradictions mm. In people and that's what he sort of tries to highlight With these characters like you know Death, the the thing that we're all Supposed to fear is actually Kind of likes kittens and Goes fishing and Is interested in canapes <laughs> and, um, and so, and the wizards and stuff who you know look the part, and you know, or all spangly or whatever, actually more likely to just want to sit around and drink and
0: yeah, just in front of the fireplace after eating a nice meal. Yeah, yeah. they don't want to go for a run around the university.
1: <laughs> now, I feel like there's something I have to get out of the way before we get too much into this discussion because hmm. I haven't I haven't read this book since probably well about for nearly 20 years, but the most recent experience I had with it, which is not much closer in time than that, was I directed the play. And so when I read it, I had the incredibly strange experience where most of the book was like, oh, I'd forgotten exactly. I know basically what happens, but I'd forgotten all the jokes and stuff, except for about 80% of the dialogue, (laughs) which I remembered with (laughs) crystal clarity uh, because I had either spoken it or told someone else how to speak it. So it was... um, yeah, it was it was really weird, uh, but great in a way. But it was just like, yeah, I'd be reading a page. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. I don't remember. That. And then someone would say something like, "I said that line," and I was like, "That's weird." <laughs> I didn't play any of the main characters because I was um I was directing, but I did play Mort's dad, Lesik. Oh, he's a good good little role so all his gags i i remember and um and i played Rincewind wind and a couple other. there were a couple of people dropped out and i ended up playing about four or five minor characters which was a bit weird but it also it meant i was very nostalgic about this book and if anybody from that production by the way is listening um a big hi <laughs> how's it going um but yeah it was it was weird and i've completely forgotten because my familiarity was with the play the stuff that's not in the play was a complete like surprise. Oh, I'd forgotten about this. Like the whole thing about the fact that Mort's family make wine out of reannual grapes. Oh yeah, which grow backwards in time, so you can use them in spells and potions for seeing through time and stuff. That was amazing, and I was like, I don't remember that.
0: And the idea of reverse hangover was one that really intrigued mm.
1: me. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, because you get it before the day before. <laughs>
0: you have to deal with it by drinking. Oh, yeah,
1: no, amazing. So that I thought that was really interesting. Cause that setup. And we get, I mean, we get our first glimpse of death before that, which is pretty brief. You know, he says, you know, this is the death whose particular sphere of operations is well, not a sphere at all. <laughs> uh, but he's, he looks like the Grim Reaper. He behaves pretty much like the Grim Reaper. And yet we know that there's something not quite right about him. But that first scene of him and the first couple of pages, he doesn't do anything funny at all. He's just, he's, he's death. Hmm. But we do, he doesn't stay like that.
0: You know, his love for kittens comes in quite quickly, like within the first few pages.
1: We start off with Mort and his dad at the, trying to get hired.
0: I'm sorry, I know you're trying to explain the plot, but just before we get any further, on a pronunciation point, like I know it's Mort because it's short for Mortimer, but after all, the Harry Potter... Voldemort, Voldemort thing. Like, could there be an argument for it being more? I'm not suggesting we do this. I'm
2: just, it's a nitpicky point. I think no, because <laughs> it also is a reference to like mortality,
1: mm. isn't it? Mm. It's Latin. So mort being Latin for death. Yeah. My grandmother once told me that she she grew up very Catholic. She's from the Irish Catholic side of the family, and she she told me that she grew up near um, one of the many places called Mort Lake in Australia. And that the nuns in her school told her that, that meant Death Lake, and she was scared of the lake forever after. And so I, I've always had that association.
2: Possibly it does. Maybe there was a massacre there.
1: Oh yeah. Mm. Oh.
0: Yeah. We, we can't talk about bleak things. We need to get onto our death book. That's <laughs> all right. Well, comedy so book about death. <laughs>
1: yeah, and it, it, I, I also I had forgotten that like you know this is Mort is from the same bit of the Discworld that the witches are from. Basically. That's right, uh-huh. yeah, he is too um, Not quite the same place, like he doesn't know any of them I wouldn't imagine, but he, but the same kind of Rural area near the mountains uh, Because they come down through the mountains To go to the hiring fair in Sheepsridge, Ridge, uh, where it's just They're just trying to find him a job what, what did you feel about that first description of Morton Where he's all elbows and um, He doesn't quite work and he's, he's too interested In how things work and all these big questions and no good at anything practical
0: He's just the relatable outsider I think, to me, you're kind of like, oh, he doesn't quite fit in to what he's supposed to be doing and not even with his family and things. And also, he's just that awkward, gangly puberty age where it's just he's in two camps at the same time, which is kind of where he goes, ultimately. Like, he's in two bigger camps at the same time.
2: He's kind of a dorky teenage boy, mm-hmm. you know? Like, the if if he was at a school, he would be kind of unpopular and, you know, Probably a little bit too interested in daydreaming and his knees would probably hit the table like when he sat down and, you know, and all of that sort of stuff.
0: And the thing about um when he gets his new outfit for the job fair that could fit 19 <laughs> elephants in it, I found that really relatable because there's um, the thing where your parents buy you clothes that you're going to grow into eventually if they assume you're going to grow to an eight foot tall lady, which I think my mom <laughs> thought I was going to do at one point. Yeah, I had a school uniform blazer that could have fit two of me in it. So yeah, I found that strangely relatable. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, it's. I mean, it's that kind of small town op shop kind of <laughs> feel. You go in there and you just don't know what you're going to find. Is it from 10 years ago or 150 years ago? You just don't know.
2: It's like, that's a very nice ellipsis garment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and yeah. I think there's things in here with me which is
0: horrifyingly <laughs> op shop. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. And, it, and they wait up all night and nobody, nobody wants him. It's very sad, actually. Yeah. But I like, I kind of, I know, look, this might just be me. I always hone in on these sort of relationships between parents and children in any fiction. But I I felt like they have a nice relationship, here and his dad. Like he really does care about him, but he's just worried because he thinks he's a bit hopeless.
0: Mm. Well, he can read.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That he's going to send him off to be apprenticed, which I, I guess is, you know, it's the kind of thing you do if you're in a magical medieval Europe kind of world. <laughs> but it feels it feels a bit more final than work experience because they talk about it in terms of like, you know, maybe the the person you're going to be apprenticed to will have a daughter and you'll get married off and take over the business. <laughs> you're like, do, do I get any choice in this? And the answer seems to be no. <laughs> it's a huge bit of telegraphing for what happens with the book. Because you sort of think, well, obviously, it's not going to be like that. Mm, mm. And then.
0: But then is it? And then, Yeah. <laughs>
1: is it, is it going to be? Oh, then, no, it won't be. But then, yeah. Mm. And death shows up. I mean, and this is where we see him properly at the fair. And that's when we get more of his personality, with the thing with the cats and so mm. on. Well,
2: really, the first, I mean, the first moment that we see death as we we're going to see him later is when he falls over. <laughs> yes. When he's, like, coming towards mort is the specter of doom and then... <laughs> Smashes his face in the, on the ground and is like, oh, bugger. <laughs> well, okay.
1: That's the death that we're going to know and love in the next, you know, 200 pages. Oddly enough, that bit of slapstick is not in the play. <laughs> I remember reading that and thinking, why didn't we do that? That's hilarious. But it also it does undercut him as a kind of all powerful, immortal being, mm. um, which I mean, and there's a lot of undercutting that, which is fine. But yeah, it seems a bit rough. Oh, poor old Death.
0: But then he's like trying to make Mort feel at ease, takes him out for a nice meal, all that kind of thing. Introduces him to not being seen. Why
1: do we think Mort is the one that Death picked?
0: Because I was wondering if it's just because he happened to be the one that was left at the market or if he'd come for him specifically.
1: Well, because he's looking at that hourglass at the start Mm. and he says, yes, that one. Uh, it's. it's sort yeah. of implied that it's his personality and his inquisitive mind, but I'm not. I'm not sure. What do we, What do we think about that?
0: Is there a thing where Death gets called Mort in an earlier book, and then he clarifies?
1: I think there is, but I mean, he also. There's also the gag in here where Mort says that my name's Mort. He says, "Oh, what a what coincidence! coincidence. <laughs> Why does he pick Mort? What has Mort got that makes him suited for this job?
0: Or is it that he always had to pick Mort because it's there's a whole thing of like predestined that you. It's all happened already, and you're just chugging along with the plan
2: part of the i mean don't want to skip too far forward Mm. yet but part of the kind of kicker at the end is that he does change like you have they have to continue with destiny but he does change significant things about it Mm. and that whole i mean the whole thing about the sphere kind of closing in on them like reality kind of coming back Mm. like i guess there is a yeah there is a sort of element of fate that is kind of embedded in this narrative um, mm-hmm. that that he's sort of always playing with all the time. But yeah, I don't think it is ever made particularly like explicit why he chose Mort. Is death affected by fate?
1: I mean, he does seem to be outside of fate. He's the one who goes off at the end, as you say, and he has a a, a word with the gods, which <laughs> sounds like he's just let's you know it's a it's a professional discussion. <laughs> um, is he is he bound by fate as well, or is he just like he can just do what he likes? I mean, he's, he's got a job to do. He can't well, he he kind
2: it. of is isn't he like i mean he's he's got a he's part of the mechanism that makes the world continue because he has to be in particular places at particular times mm. that whole thing about the um i can't remember what they call the it nodes yeah he they have to make the nodes line up or whatever it is mm. and um so he he has he has rules he has to abide by and they're already like predetermined like mm. you know where he has to be and who he has to kind of wield the scythe on
0: yeah um, cuz he's trying to kind of break free of his fate in some ways in the middle.
1: This is an important question. Is he really planning to retire? Is that his whole plan? Because that's almost what happens.
0: Mm. I didn't think so. I thought he was just kind of having a bit of an existential crisis (laughs) and trying to um, relate to the people that he normally doesn't get to interact with much. So he's Mm. like, oh, well, I'll see what they're all about. And then he, he gets to see a little bit too closely what they're about. And that just sort of messes him up for a bit before he has a chance to figure out who he is and where he fits in with the grand scheme.
2: But. There's also that thing about how death is whoever does the job. Mm. So it's not like death, thems, death, the being can really retire, but the body that does the job of death or inhabits that space maybe um, can change. And perhaps that's what he's playing with, like the idea of moving out of that. and repl- Yeah.
0: The thing that the part of me that likes to line up pencils in like spectrum order um, really wanted Mort and Death to actually have been the same person all along in a cycle that goes through time, but it didn't work out like that. No. Not the first time I read it, not this time, even though part of me was hoping it had somehow changed. But, yeah, I thought that would be quite tidy.
1: But... Yeah. I mean, it does, it does certainly leave open the question of, you know, is it, until you read the later Death books that make it fairly clear that it's not the case, it, it could be, if you just read Mort, that the Death that we know was once a normal person. Yeah, that
2: did occur to me when I was reading this one this time around. Yeah. Um,
1: but but then it also talks about the fact that really it needs to be him as a dispassionate non-person mm. who does the job or it's going to be, you know, horrible.
2: Or the job itself turns you into a non-person. Mm.
1: Yeah. it's very strongly implied that if Mort had become death permanently, he would have been a much more vengeful, horrible thing, which a person who took on that job would do. Mm. So it's not, yeah, it's, it's a bit unclear. And I think that's nice. It's good that it's unclear. Yeah. Uh, and it's always nice to have a bit of fuzziness around the edges. Um, and actually, speaking of fuzziness around the edges, one of the things that keeps getting mentioned a lot in this book, and then is kind of not mentioned too much in later Discworld novels, is about how slow light is. Yeah, in the Discworld. I noticed that as well. Because he, he and he every time he talks about light, he reiterates how it's slow. And I kept thinking it was going to be a plot point, and it wasn't really. Uh, it just has, you know, a nice it allows a nice bit of wordplay when they talk about travelling at the speed of night, mm. um, which I thought was delightful but not really important to the plot at all.
0: Well, there was kind of like a theme of different kinds of passage of time because, like, death can control time, which is why he can cook so quickly when he's working at a diner. But, um, yeah, I thought just the different speeds of things kind of just was showing that it's not what you think, like the whole thing about speeds of monarchs as a measurement of time yeah. as well. So.
2: I think also that those references to the speed of light and to the nature of it, like being kind of syrupy, that stuff does appear in his early books. I I sort of feel like that's part of him still sort of finding the world. Um, And even like references to the eighth colour, like octarine, they disappear from later books as well. Like that sort of stuff it's almost a bit more like indulgent in these early books those details of the world that he's creating and then later on he's done enough of that or Mm. got sick of it or whatever.
1: Yeah. I get the the impression he's sort of transitioning from feeling he needs to parody or at least pay service to the traditions of fantasy literature. Mm. But then as the stories goes on, he just chooses to focus on the things that he thinks are important for the disc world, which is mostly people as we've discussed before. This sequence where death takes Mort around to sort of say, you know, it's going to be fine. We'll get you some good clothes. Uh, and they visit Ankh Morpork, um, and that's where that's where one of the most famous lines of the book comes in. When Death says he could murder a curry, because <laughs> he speaks in all capitals, mm. what does that sound like in your head? I mean, it's described variously in the book is in different ways, including the sound of gravestones scraping mm. across each other, coffin like, lids
2: clanging. Yeah, <laughs> well,
1: what do you think it sounds like?
2: Well, I don't think it sounds like anything. It's like there's a line in there that about the words arriving in Mort's head. I sort of imagine an intrusive, yeah, I guess intrusive thoughts that are very dominant, I suppose. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, I, I, f- I imagine it as, like, as, as words kind of taking over your brain without
1: you having any um, say about it.
0: Yeah, and there's no quotation marks around them either, so they're not being said.
1: Mm. Yeah, um, so, but that is, that is where he goes for a curry, which is, sort of shows his, he starts off quite human, I mm. feel. Like, this whole book is about him becoming more human, but at the same time, he starts off very human.
0: Mm. They talk about him trying to put more at ease, like he's going out of his way to, like, act more that way. So, maybe it's a little bit of a case of you act like something, and then it sort of becomes, oh, this is this what I'm
2: actually like? And then... Fake it till yeah. you make it. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because he's been doing this for a very long time, obviously. And also,
2: he's been living with a human mm. for. A long time, too. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I think, you know, he's not coming to this entirely, like, new. Like, he's got something to draw on.
1: Yeah, and that's that's interesting, actually, because just after that uh, is when we first get introduced to Death's Domain and we meet the other inhabitants, mm. Albert and uh, Isabel. And Albert's been there, we find out later on, for about 2,000 years of real disc time.
0: So, he should be better at making porridge by then. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, think, I think he's perfectly good at making porridge, his way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it just is a bit scary. Like, you wonder if that's the origins of the Yank as well. Sorry, I always talk about eating the river. It's just it's, <laughs> it's
1: fine. His cooking is very much a, a comment on traditional British stodge breakfast food. Yeah. Like, having mm. been not, to... not good to read with a hangover, <laughs> I've got to say. And the <laughs> no? drip at, at he the he end of his nose. <laughs> oh, the drip at the end of his nose? Yeah, that's
0: well, I'm just oh, always yeah. worried about him cooking with that drip.
1: Uh, but we, we get introduced to Death's Domain for the first time. Where everything is all the different shades of black, oh, and the scythe and the umbrella stand like there's yeah. <laughs> so many good like visuals. It's just so good, and I, I kind of feel like I don't don't ever want them to to see them try and put that on film. Like I just don't think it'll be as good as it is in your head. Um, but what do we think? What do we think about the rest of the cast? So we meet Isabel first, and then we meet Albert.
0: See, it was really weird for me, because I didn't I'd forgotten this until I was rereading it this time, but I originally, because I got my orders all mixed up, I'd read soul music before this one. So when I was first reading it, I was kinda like, Oh, it's that person and oh this is gonna happen. So I had kind of I'd come into it with a lens of fitting people with a narrative I knew that was coming to them.
1: Mm. Well maybe we'll start with Isabel, because yep. she gets a pretty unflattering uh description. Um, where it's it says about her that, that she has the hint of too many chocolates about her. And they um, keep
0: littering the chocolates throughout the throughout the rest of the descriptions Over Like later, there's a scene in her room where there's a box of chocolates, well, mostly wrappers and things, because she's got this air of a likes to read a romantic book with a box of chocolates and just a tra- she's a sucker for a
2: tragic love story and loves frills. Like she's very much a stereotype in look, but... It is a bit of a mean characterization of her, I feel. Like, I mean, I found her kind of annoying, but then I realized I found her annoying because Pratchett's written her to be a kind of annoying 16-year-old girl, you know, I think she's 16, isn't she? 16 for 35 years. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And, um, okay, so she doesn't have any friends. She's hanging around with this old guy (laughs) and this skeleton and you know for however many years she's been in this place and so okay well maybe the only pleasures she has are (laughs) romantic novels and chocolates and I sort of but I sort of feel like you don't ever kind of quite get um the opportunity to have much empathy for her in Mm. like the way that this, this book's written um and I think I mean I think he I think Pratchett does better with like female characters like later in the series but this particular one even later with Kelly she's still she's still not entirely likable. Like, I mean, it, Mort is kind of likable, even though he's kind of weird and gangly and whatever and makes mistakes. But I feel like my first impression of Isabel was kind of coloured by the fact that she wasn't written to be particularly a, a, a source of, like, empathy for the reader. Yeah, she, yeah,
0: he's kind of written these two annoying teenage girl characters mm. in it. And for the first half of the book, you kind of see Isabel as that, oh, she's the one who's, like, mean to Mort for, like, no good reason – Um, it's often the distance is a bit aloof and standoffish because she's not really in it except for being slightly antagonistic for the first half I wonder like and this might be a generous reading if he's trying to be like oh this is like a teenage boy's view of these women which is they're mysterious they don't like me and I don't understand what they're doing but that might be a bit of a generous reading of it but Mm. yeah they're not I agree they're not particularly likable and I think that's because of how they're written not because of who they are
1: yeah, I I think it's interesting that Mort has that kind of. is a very stereotypical view of what she should and shouldn't be like. Mm. Uh, in that, you know, she dresses a bit like a, a fairy tale princess in some ways, like the kind of clothes that she wears. Like there's all those passages about plunging necklines and weird <laughs> chiffon and lace upon doilies or whatever it is, you know but you know he's from a, a tiny country town in the mountains like he's probably seen half a dozen women his own age ever in his whole life and they're um, probably all related to him yeah so it's <laughs> like where are you getting these ideas from and it's probably cuz he reads books right he's been he's been given all these ideas he's he's been corrupted by culture hmm. uh, to expect <laughs> women to be a particular way. Damn you culture. And I felt I, very sympathetic to Isabel. I agree. She's written to be very annoying at the start and everyone treats him a bit like a jerk, but at the same time, it's it's weird. Uh, one thing I found really weird is Mort always objects to people calling him boy. Mm. And it's, it's always, it's mostly death, but it's also Isabel. It's also Albert occasionally, but it, Surely that would be, like, for an apprentice in a medieval fantasy world, like, you should expect to be called boy. Like, you are the equivalent of a stable boy. It's almost like your job description. Um, Which is not to say it can not also be used as a very disrespectful and, of course, in our world, racist term. Mm. But in his context, it feels like you should be all right with this. Stop being a jerk about it. And where does this arrogance come from that you think everyone should call you by your name? I found myself on this read, uh, really interestingly, having very little sympathy for Mort. You were talking mm. about how he's mm. very likable, and he should be, but I just was like, get with the program, you jerk. <laughs> like, I was really, I didn't like him.
0: I don't know if it's because I'm, I'm older now, and I'm just kind of like, damn, kids, just be polite to each other. That's the oldest thing I've ever said. It <laughs> <laughs> was pretty good. I was like, you're children, be polite, do the chores, don't complain.
2: I mean, when I was also, 16. don't make stupid decisions like you do. Like, yeah. Why would you do that? Can you not see the outcome is going to be bad? Yeah. He's oh. been doing this for a while.
0: Just, just follow the instructions.
3: <laughs> yeah. What yeah. a
0: great book that would be. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, basically, my impression of the characters in the thing is it is kind of like the best sitcom ever. You've got Skeleton Death. You've got this old guy who's been there for 2,000 years. You've got this young girl who loves eating chocolates and reading romantic novels. And you've got this... this Every man guy who's coming to do an apprenticeship and the four of them together could make for hilarious hijinks in their just eccentric home situation, which they do fleetingly Mm. from time to time. But I would have loved to see more of their just mundane trying to get along at a table sort of situation. Like, what's a meal with the four of them all sitting together? Like, do they go for walks around the garden? So, it's kind of like the best four weird characters living together you could hope
2: for that's a great way of looking at the setup actually as like a potential sitcom you know and now that you say that i kind of wish he had kind of done that (laughs) a bit more like yeah
1: yeah what is
2: breakfast with this porridge going to be like with the four (laughs) of them
1: there's no sort of yeah situation normal for them that's kind of skipped Mm. over isn't it we get it briefly at the start and there's the it's got sitcom motivations as well like when death is sort of like Talking suggestively about Isabelle. it's like yeah. one day all this will be <laughs> yes. hers. Wink, and you're like, first of all, that makes no sense. <laughs> um, what is going on there? Yeah, and all the weird.
0: slightly wrong sets as well, like the the fountain with the vomiting. like There's a lion or something, and I'm just like, finally, someone points out that these are not elegant. They're just like creatures throwing up into a
3: fountain.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it's actually, it's one of of the things that struck me is that I thought maybe a large part of death's motivation for getting an apprentice was not actually, it was partly so he'd have a bit of time off, but also because he's he's absorbed that story from the real world about Mm. that's how you marry your daughter off, is you Mm. take an apprentice, and I'm like. Is that what he's? I mean, it's clearly his partly his motivation, mm. the way he behaves.
2: But there's also that, also those lines about how, like, the death's Domain is a mimicry of the world, mm. and he hasn't invented any of the stuff that's there; it's all copies. So it's almost like what he's doing with his with Isabel, with Mort, with everything about where he lives. He is trying to mimic humanity. He doesn't understand humanity, and he's trying to understand it by impersonating it and Maybe that's, maybe that's part of what we are trying to get at before. Like he, he, is this, he is essentially removed from people because he is the reason that they die or he is the, the force that kind of ushers them into the next world. But because he's, so, he's around them so much, he kind of really ne- feels like he needs to understand what they're about. Mm. And so this whole setup that he's got now, like he, you know, he, he rescues Isabel, doesn't he? Isn't that how he yeah. – like her parents die and he kind of takes her. Takes her. Yeah. So that, I mean, that, he's breaking his own rules in that. And I sort of feel like that, that's an example of him trying to, you know, be, um, trying to have compassion, which is a human feeling, not a, not a feeling that death is supposed to mm. have. And so, yeah. So I wonder, I wonder if this is all like, this has all come about because he doesn't understand people but he really, really wants to and so he feels like if he can structure his world around those, the human structures, then he'll be better able to do that. Yeah,
0: and so after the domain, that after everyone enters Death's domain, there's that splitting of storylines. So you've got Death going off to be like more human, and you've got Mort sort of slowly becoming more Death, and it's interesting to follow their almost parallel storylines as they are more each other, but not even remotely, because Mort's never really been in the world, and the Death that Mort sort of becomes is not like the one we know, so it's mm. how people are like, it's trying to match your inside to someone's outside, that kind mm. of... Thing which is interesting so we've got like death at a party which is one of my favorite scenes in the book because that is just exactly what it's like to be at a party yeah, <laughs> yeah i think we've all felt that
1: it's like why am i here particularly a really big party because it's are the- we having fun
0: <laughs> this is fun this is for fun who is fun
1: because <laughs> yeah. that's the uh it's the patrician's birthday but not most likely the patrician we know lord vetinari mm-hmm. that's like 20 something years later and so. this
0: patrician's been king king patrician for 10 years already by this point so
1: yeah and he has a pet pa- dragon not a pet dog
0: which is ridiculous because that's like, so dangerous to have a pet swamp dragon <laughs>
1: <laughs> but this i think it's the first time swamp dragons are mentioned
0: and this one's quite smart like it has thoughts like and it can see death whereas other people can't
1: i think the tradition is like wizards can see death Cats. Can- Cats and some other animals can see mm. death. And sometimes people can see death if it's the right moment, you know, like when they, obviously when they die, but occasionally other people will notice them as well.
0: But How exactly does a swamp dragon join a conga line or a snake dance?
1: I think he'd obviously not really thought about how small swamp dragons <laughs>
2: <laughs> i mean if you if you're in the early stages of building your world right yeah. still i mean in relative pratchett terms he kind of is isn't he like some of them are i mean they're small but some of them are kind of fat and some of them are a bit bigger and some like i can just imagine i mean, maybe the maybe the swamp dragon isn't like walking along, kicking butt, like kind of <laughs> flying with, you know, someone's holding his backside, someone's kind of, you know, it's kind of got a going little fluffy like, yeah. bit, yeah. I don't
1: know, I have to admit, I was imagining him looking a bit like HR Puff and stuff. You know, <laughs> sort of, yeah, it's of stupid costume, but. Yeah, Barney know. the
2: Dinosaur or something. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh,
1: yeah. Terrible image. <laughs>
0: this line of people with death and a swamp dragon and a bit of a drunk guy <laughs> having a chat about what is fun. So Death's gone to a party, then after that he goes, he goes and does some gambling, goes and tries out drinking. That's right. At some
2: point he goes fishing.
0: And who's going to try the other, like, pleasure of the flesh, but he's like, that probably wouldn't quite work for his bony body.
1: I want to skip back a little bit because we've missed the time that Mort goes out on the duty with Death for the first time, mm. which is such a, you know, work experience moment. It's like, <laughs> all right, we, you've, you've been doing all this just nonsense business at home. Now you're going to come with me on the rounds. And he gets to experience what happens, you know, and they kill the king. And mm. that's when he sees Kelly for the first time. I'm not quite sure where it's going. Like, it's clear that Mort is meant to be completely smitten with this princess. But it seems like he's smitten with her for no reason other than she's a princess. I don't know. What, how do you feel about that moment? Where where did that come from?
0: I didn't buy their chemistry at any stage. Um, not that they really had any, but I think the thing about her attractiveness is that she has a, a thrall or an appeal to her because of her background, her lineage. She's got a power to her that attracts people because she's kind of a born leader. And that was what I thought that was, which they make little mentions of throughout. She's got the strong jawline. She's like her um, relative who who stopped everyone at Stolat and stole it to to build their towns there because they're just strong, powerful people, and she's inherited that. Speaking of Princess Kelly's ancestors coming to the lands they're in now, Stolat and lit. as I was reading, I'm wondering, is it stole that and stole it? Because they just came across these lands and sort of went, we're going to live here. So they stole that and they stole it. So that was what I thought his. Draw was, and also he's a teenage boy, and she's a girl. Mm. So
2: there's there's also that um, image of her, like immediately after the king's being killed, like striding down the hallway with all of her maids or handmaidens or whatever they were, like twittering behind her. And um, that, I mean, that to me sort of that that's a woman who she might not be very old, but she definitely knows what she's about, and you know what her role is in society. But I didn't, I didn't really buy their chemistry, but I did really did kind of get the sense that that was like a teenage flash of lust, you know, like Mm. these things that they're so arbitrary when they they happen when you're a teenager, you know, the target of them might not be anyone that you would later think, oh yeah, that's totally my type. You can tell later in the book that the decision that Mort makes later about Kelly is totally on impulse and that flash of kind of desire is part of it.
1: Hmm.
0: It's kind of
2: like the Romeo and Juliet
0: thing, because Romeo and Juliet, had they dated for longer than seven days or whatever, would totally have broken up and not ever spoken to each other again. But because they're in this extreme situation where things happen and they had that initial flash of lust, they latch onto that and then things get out of control. And so that's kind of what I thought it was like as well. So he just latched onto this momentary fleeting feeling from his glands. (laughs) And um, that's where it all went wrong
1: it felt like he was trying to write her as a character that you get to love which is kind of what happens between her and cutwell later on Mm. whereas initially she's like very difficult and very off-putting and yet it's important to the plot that he falls for her almost immediately he sticks with his decision but he does not stick with his feelings from that moment Mm. Um, although it takes him a while to work that out which is a very teenage person thing Mm. to do you Mm. know like, that's, yeah, I feel this way. I don't really feel this way. I don't understand my <laughs> own feelings, which is, uh, I think we can all identify with that. Yeah. After the king's death, he asks for an afternoon off because he wants to go and see her. Mm-hmm. So it's not just, you know, it's a, it's a, he's following up on this whim and, and death's like, okay, you can have an afternoon off here. Take some money. And I love that joke <laughs> about where did you come by these coins? <laughs> in <pairs," you> know. <laughs> then he goes to see her. He doesn't have any trouble with anyone seeing him because when he's not on the rounds, he's not doing the job, he's more or less normal, except when he accidentally walks through things.
2: That um, line about... Um, when he first walks through the wall and then realises that's not something you can do and he feels the cold stone kind of closing mm. around him. That oh, that yeah. was the most – for me, that was the most visceral – that's the most visceral passage in this book. And it, for some reason, it, yeah, it makes me shiver every time I think about it. It's quite a
1: claustrophobic line. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, you're not trapped in a small room. You're trapped literally mm. inside a wall. And not even in the space inside a wall, just inside a wall. <laughs> He does it two or three times where he says, you know, I, people walk in and out of that door all the time. It's just that mostly they open it first. <laughs> but it's a repeated joke, which is, he does, he does a bit of joke repetition in this book, which we didn't see in the later books. I think it's, it's almost like at this stage in his writing, when he has a good joke or a good concept, he just wants you to remind, remind you about it. Like the light moving slower in the magical field or um, somebody walking through a door. But they didn't open it first. Like he thinks that's Mm -hmm. hilarious. I'm going to use that five times. And he's correct. (laughs) He is correct. It is hilarious. Um, I did enjoy it every time. (laughs) And this is where we meet Cutwell for the first time. Yeah. He can't control it at this stage. He has no conscious control over where he's whether he's walking through walls or not, and he can't get in to see Kelly because she's a princess. And it's Um, that
0: great scene of like death's gangly teenage goofy-looking apprentice coming in to meet the, the young wizard who doesn't have a beard, who loves treacle sandwiches, and there's these two characters who don't look like what they're supposed to be, meeting to talk about their business, which
1: I love. Cutwell's a really interesting sort of projection of where the wizards are going to end up, because he hasn't written any what we would now think of as a wizard's book by mm. this stage. Um, and there's a I mean even the one after this sorcery, which is a Rincewind book and does have the wizards in it, is still kind of finding its feet in terms of you know who are the wizards, what are they like and yet here Cutwell is very clearly depicted as you know a recently graduated student who's still <laughs> yeah. living like a student, but also he set up his own business, and I really like that he describes um Advertising as a kind of magic that he's trying to invent, <laughs> <laughs> I thought was hilarious.
2: Took me a couple of goes to kind of get that university student image into my head. I think the first time because I was so used to the wizards always being like fat, slobbish. I mean, he's a slob, but it's a different kind of slobbishness, I think, mm-hmm. um, and old. I and mean, then to kind of like rewire the the yeah the image in my head to be somebody who was young, slobbish, and kind of scruffy. I mean, I, I, kind of, I kind of liked him by the end. I didn't really like him at the, at the beginning. I think I thought he was a bit of a, um, a lying.
0: Bit of a snake oil salesman.
2: Yeah, thing. that's right. That's exactly what it was, mm. yeah.
0: Because he doesn't seem to be able to do any of the things that a wizard should be able to do, but he really wants to sell you a love potion. But <laughs>
1: yeah although you get you do get the impression that it would work because it's made by Granny Weatherwax or at least it would make you think that it was working. yeah which I thought was pretty weird to see her name pop up. I'm like well, she was in the book immediately previous to this but again like it's not quite the first witch's book in some ways.
2: But you can kind of see. I think I sort of feel like Pratchett invents these little minor characters, and then gets really interested in them. And then it's like, okay, I'm gonna like, I'm gonna mm. take this person, and I'm gonna put them in their hometown, and I'm gonna like explore what they're about. Yeah. But I, I mean that that passage, <laughs> that I laughed out, I laughed out loud. I think for the first time in this book, on the second read, when um he skulls the bottle without really thinking about what's in it and then suddenly has to, like, bolt out and land in the horse trough and then it starts to steam. Um, yeah. Well, I, I And I think he fits in with the characters in over their
0: head sort of motif that is in there. So, like, there's at who basically he's gotten the video training that you get at your fast food job and then they're like, and now off you go. And then this guy's graduated from university, which doesn't always give you the real-life experience you think you're going to need. And now he's opened up a business and he's got to do it on his own. He hasn't got a safety net. And I found that interesting as well. Yeah. Yeah. Both of them are kind of like when I worked at McDonald's as a teenager, they gave me the half-hour thing and then they're like, now you're on the drive-through. And it was terrifying.
2: It's also one of the few wizards who isn't um, immediately located in the university or adjacent to it. Like he – I mean, obviously he has – been there but he you don't we don't see that many wizards in the disc world who are just kind of free-ranging like that
0: yeah in the wild yeah yeah
2: doing their own thing
0: yeah And not having a beard like what, yeah exactly yeah, what is that
2: <laughs>
1: yeah yeah that's ridiculous hmm. um I, yeah it's he's an interesting character who, who, who again is someone we never hear of or meet ever again um, which becomes really unusual in the later books. But in the earlier ones, it is like he's almost trying things out and then going, eh, I'm not really that interested in that guy. I've said everything I want to say about him. Mm. So, yeah, he's, a, he's an interesting character, but he's gross, and he promises that he's going to investigate how you can walk through walls. But before he can really do anything about it, this is when Mort gets sent off to do his own round mm. by himself for the first time while Death has an afternoon off. And I thought one of the things that happened before that is when Death is talking to Albert, about how he's going to send Mort off by himself. And he's clearly really sad. Like, it's really getting to him, the job. And I think what you said before is right. I think it's getting to him because he's been around Isabel and Albert. He's absorbed a bit of their humanity and the enormity of the task before him and the eternal loneliness. It's part of who he is. And that's it's really sad.
0: Well, and he only gets to see people at the end of their lives. And in this thing where he's like, I can't when he's drinking... He's he's clearly very lonely. He says he never gets invited to staff. He doesn't have any friends. And that is actually really quite sad to hear him say.
2: This is one of the things that I feel like is evidence of kind of internal inconsistency in the way Pratchett characterizes death because he often talks about, you know, the things that emotions are mostly glands, you know, like feelings and stuff. That's a human thing. At the same time, he has this character who – who we feel, really feel like does have emo- an emotional trajectory and does kind of have, um, yeah, have changes in mood and so on. Who is also trying to mimic, but I don't know. I, it, there's, a, there's a tension there that never quite sat perfectly well with me. I think, um, and I and I, I mean, it, it works. It works for the books, and it's entertaining, and it means the laughs land, and it means you have a character who is a character who isn't just like a. Um, a piece of the scenery, but at the same time, I don't think it – like, technically, I don't think it quite works at the same – like, if, maybe, maybe technically is not the word. There, there, there is an inconsistency there with the mm. characterization of, of death.
1: Yeah, and this story wouldn't work without that inconsistency. No. Because it, the, that sadness is his motivation. And I think the way that I have kind of resolved it to myself is much what Liz was saying, is that you know, he's absorbed that kind of feeling – from being around humans, and it's sort of—he's—he's he's picked it up, and whether or not he really feels it, or it's some sort of weird echo, we don't know. And in well, a way, sorry, no, go on. Because
0: everything's a copy with him, so he's yeah, copying the people, and he's
1: which they say, like you know, explicitly towards the end of the book, you know, they talk about how you know—is he—is he—is are these real emotions that he's feeling, mm. or is he just? Manufacturing them in the same way he manufactured his house and the garden and everything else, so it's yeah, it's an interesting question that is never quite resolved. And his characterization in the later books, um, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily solve that problem.
2: I mean, there's a, there's technical reasons why you need to have it right. Like you said, the story wouldn't work. You need for characters to do things; they need to be motivated by by something, and that's usually something emotional. And so to have a character who is not who cannot feel emotion, like you. Something needs to motivate them. Mm. Um,
1: he doesn't have a clear goal or task in mind. It's mm. never, it's, he never says, I want you to take over or I want you to marry Isabel and go away and, or you know, I want to not be death anymore. But he's, and, and if you're not going to state that, well, then you do need, you need that emotional reason for doing anything. Uh, but speaking of emotional reasons for doing things, <laughs> this is when Mort goes off the rails and when the, real, you know, the, the linchpin of the plot kicks in is when he, he goes on the rounds for the first time and he's a bit upset because there's a three people he has to deal with and the first two just don't seem to go according to plan.
0: <laughs> what well, is exactly like customer service? Like The moment your manager goes away and leaves you by yourself for the first time, you get all of the difficult customers who <laughs> want a complicated thing and you're like, the customer's always right but I wasn't trained for this so what do I do? I guess I'll go with what they're saying. And he's kind he's got that situation that anyone who's worked a job like that has been in except with a bit more long-term consequences yeah
1: no that's true because he doesn't get you know the ones that we see earlier on in the book are pretty straightforward Mm. like you know king dies you cut their soul or or essence away from their body and i don't think he ever actually uses the word soul to refer to Mm. what's left behind when someone dies no. Oh, not, or what, what continues when someone dies. Yeah. but Because they don't continue in, in our experience at all. Like, they vanish and go somewhere else. Mm. But then he gets, yeah, the witch who just wants to dissipate into the ether. And you get the abbot who just is going to reincarnate. Yeah. Just and-
0: drop me off. and being conceived right now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so weird. so weird. Because <laughs> it sort of makes you think, well, some people believe that really happens. Yeah. Mm presumably they don't get carried from the point of their death to the point of their new life on a horse. But it is weird when you think, stop and think about it.
2: Isn't it also an exploration of the different things that people believe too, like about what happens to you after death? Mm. And so I feel like if he, if, if he was too explicit about what that thing is that's anticipating or what that thing is that he kind of collects or whatever, it, would be,
1: it wouldn't be a Pratchett book. Well, I think the point of it is also to point out that all of the things that anybody thinks about what happens after you're dead – are weird like mm. we don't mm. you just it, you don't know yeah <laughs> we just believe something weird and, and everyone gets what they believe is going to happen and it's one of those rare instances where that requires something to be shown happening whereas usually you know they disappear and there are those rare books like in small gods for example where you do see a bit of somebody's afterlife mm. but usually you don't see anything of it and so he gets past those two He's in a bit of a state about it, by the, each time, although you know, he's very lucky to have a witch as the first one he does on his own because yeah. she's very understanding. And <laughs> she even takes- lets
0: um hay out for the hoss. Yeah. Is- Just. <laughs> <laughs> <I know.
1: laughs> Oh, she's so nice. All the yeah. witches are so great.
2: Yeah. I love, I want to just, as a quick aside, I love the way that almost nobody can spell correctly mm. in, these, in these books, and <laughs> the, the witches in particular. I'm mean, like, like Granny Weatherwax and I Ain't Dead, you know. I yeah. always find that very endearing. Yeah.
1: And yeah. it's, it's, it's a nice sort of uh, reminder that, you know, standardized spelling is a fairly recent invention, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway. Oh, yeah,
2: because they talk about
0: old language before they decided on spelling as mm, well. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then he's got to kill the princess. Not kill like well, not kill. No,
0: just facilitate her passage.
1: Yes, that's true. It's very important because they. It, it's a very they, important distinction. Very <laughs> important distinction, uh, and he decides not to do it.
0: And then he kills someone else. Like he actively kills the. Yeah,
1: and, and you know, there's very little said about that.
0: I assume he just comes back to life. The assassin that he kills instead of Kelly. Well, like, does he fall on his own knife or something? Oh, I kind well, of
1: there's kind of a little word about how he was meant to die soon after anyway because the. That's right. Duke was going to Duke packed him a lunch. So, oh no, that was the assassin who killed the 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 king. king, Yeah, but presumably the The same deal. So that is not a big effect on fate because he was going to die anyway. Yeah,
2: maybe it's just one of those cases of a character that. Served a function and then is like <laughs> speedily forgotten once <laughs> once yeah. the function has been served.
1: I mean, it's kind of almost worse that he didn't just not take away the life of someone who was supposed to die. He replaced it. With it's them. the
0: tramway, like the ethical dilemma, whereas like if you are watching a tram go down a line and you let it hit people or you hit five people, or you can divert it to hit one person.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you know, for a normal person, it would be a different situation because, well, there's a, this is about a person's actions. And, of course, you should try and stop someone who's trying to kill someone else. Whether or not you think it's acceptable to kill them in order to do that, that's that's another ethical question. But in Mort's position, it's just meant to happen. It's, it is as if it was, you know, an implacable object just doing its thing and not someone making a decision.
2: Yes, he's choosing to... Kill somebody else, whereas before he was just facilitating. You're right. And so, and there is no interrogation of what choosing to essentially commit murder caused the wrong person to die, which. Mm.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's because the thing that he's doing is, is traditionally heroic. Like, he's killing an assassin mm. to save a princess. There's stuff later in the book about how he's trying to act like a traditional hero, even though his position makes that quite difficult. But that's, that's what he's doing. And I think that's why we don't worry about it. Because, like, if it was a traditional story and the assassin was about to kill the princess and you killed the assassin, no one would be like, what about the assassin's family? How are they going to eat now?
0: Even with traditional heroes, you kind of get an ethics buffer for them if they kill someone. Because in all of Disney, if the villain dies, it's because the hero has given them an out. They come back and try and go in for the last stab and then they fall off a building. And it's not really the hero's fault that the villain happens to die, which is not the case here.
1: No, but this is much more like traditional fantasy where murdering bad guys is... Mm basically traditional <laughs> like no one ever no one ever reads Tolkien and goes well, what about all these orcs like you're killing all these orcs you like well the orcs are evil okay well what about all these men that are working with the evil like orcs are, are they... kind of
0: dead anyway they're they're mutilated previously things so it's,
1: yeah it's <laughs> that's a that's a fuzzy area I'll, I'll it's grant like you killing a zombie <laughs> In fact, the exact nature of orcs is up for debate as Tolkien provided no less than seven different origins for them in his various writings and notes. So it's hardly any wonder that we found the subject a little bit awkward. Well, the thing that is not a traditional hero thing is where he basically goes, I'm really sorry, (laughs) (laughs) apologises for it, and then runs off.
0: But so he, he messes with fate, essentially, so she lives when she shouldn't have, and that's where all the interesting stuff, more of the interesting stuff starts to happen. After she dies, what happens is everyone thinks she has everyone starts acting as though she has Mm. and it's they can't sort of believe what they're seeing like what would you do if you knew like you go to the wizard he shows you your fate and all of the tarot cards of death somehow and you know this is the situation like where do you go from there
1: it makes you confront your own beliefs about things i mean in the disc world clearly there is fate because someone knows in advance when you're going to die and Mm. might show up to make the transition happen because you're a significant one in terms of the broader destiny they never really explain why certain deaths are important they just Mm. say some of them are and some of them aren't and it's it's sort of implied that well, some of them have a bigger effect on the history of the world and those are the ones where you have to sort of make sure it all happens
0: which is kind of like reality is a sort of a treacle type substance poured over the world and if you mess up the pockmarks of the world by like making the wrong deaths it will come in and ooze into the gaps and and fix it
1: that is, I'm picturing that. that yeah, that's a great image. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow. And that's
0: kind of what happened with the dome. Like the dome's like, oh no, something's gone wrong. Mm. We're going to hone in on, on that and we'll sort it out in the next sort of few days. So yeah, if you mess it up, it seems like it will get fixed somehow anyway.
1: Indeed, it says in the book, it's like, oh, here's his salvation. He should just let this happen and everything will be fine. But he doesn't want to let it happen. At that point, by the time he realizes that it's going to fix itself and he decides that's not good enough, I feel like that's when he really becomes... Super stubborn, and mm. you know, and and I just started to really have a hard time having sympathy for him. I get it; you don't want him to die, but also. Understand the bigger picture. Like you've learned nothing from your <laughs> apprenticeship so
0: far. To be fair, it's been like three days, and he's sent out. On <laughs> yeah. his own. Well,
1: is it, has it been three days? It's kind of implied that he like spends quite a lot of shovel time shovel horse dung for quite a while yeah. before
0: he
2: went out on the rounds. Yeah, then he in he did terms like, of
0: him learning mm. the actual job, like he's only done that one round really.
1: Well, that's true. It does seem like he doesn't get a lot of actual. Like, there's no manual, mm. you know, and it hasn't been explained to him how to figure out who's important and who's not, or what will happen if he doesn't do that.
2: When when you're saying about how would you feel in that situation, how would you react to, you know, finding out you're dead? Like she resists it. But I sort of think if she had just accepted, oh, actually, okay, I'm dead. All right. that reality would have just kind of closed in really quickly. Yeah. How would you you react? I don't know because
0: it's like there's no right answer. And I guess it would be easiest to go with the path of least resistance if you kind of go, oh, well, if it's fated – then I guess I'll just enjoy the time I have, let it happen, and be like, Oh well
2: I get this bonus extra time. That's great. Do you think Kelly is the kind of character though that would She she doesn't she's not the kind of character that would just accept something? No. She's like actually <laughs> <laughs> the way the world is is how I say it should be. Yeah, she's very rigid and she knows she's a powerful person, mm. so
0: she's her way is more important than fate,
1: and particularly the way they describe like her lineage and like the kind of basically the Dothraki from like Game of <laughs> yeah, Thrones, yeah, right? Yeah, totally. The travelling people, and but they just went. Ah, oh, we're sick of this. They're just <laughs> here's a city. We'll have that one. That comes through in her personality. It's like, I, no, I will just take what I want, and what I want is to. Be alive and she refuses to die a
0: commoner like she's just like oh we're gonna do this coronation as soon as possible yeah. as well
1: i like all the shortcuts that they take
0: <laughs> yeah also it's an interesting point they were going to sacrifice an elephant um for reasons religious but i Surely, elephants should be more revered than they are on the Discworld, since it's riding and the b- it up, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, so yeah. surely they shouldn't be like
2: working at a mill and then
0: be sacrificed for a thing. Like, but maybe,
2: the- maybe that's why they're being sacrificed. Like that's this is like deal. yeah, this is a huge moment, and they're it's a very special creature. And it's
1: like the second most holy animal after the turtle. 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 Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, they yeah. They don't. Yeah. Four I mean, times less holy
2: than a turtle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: What a quarter is <laughs> um, holy. Uh, that's, oh, that's, that's not try explaining that to an elephant. Mm, no, I don't right. think they'd like that. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it does become, I mean, I think that once that happens, the plot gets a lot of momentum. Mm. And even though that's, that happens, you know, less than halfway through the book, from that point on, it's really, it's happening. Yeah. You know, it's, it's going on. And we so. proceed pretty quickly to Mort talking to Cutwell and going, well, there might be a spell, but you need a really powerful wizard to cast it. He's going, wait a minute, I think I know a really powerful wizard. I think I've worked out Albert's deal. And then his whole Mm -hmm. story where you find out he was the founder of the Unseen University. You know, he's made all these enemies and some of them don't have heads, you know. (laughs) They're they're coming for me in the afterlife and I don't want to see them. (laughs) Yeah, it might not even be an afterlife. They might snatch (laughs) him away. You know, it's clearly that thing of the dungeon dimensions, Mm -hmm. which it's one of the few things that, has stuck around from the really early bits of Discworld. And I like how uh, unspecific it is. It's like we don't know what they are, or really, or what they want. We just know that Albert has pissed them off; <laughs> they're going to come for him. That's really all you need to know.
2: There's also like flashes, particularly when he's trying to prevent Mort and Isabel reading his life story, oh, that's um, so um, where see. he just he gets really nasty. Like you see the mean tyrant wizard come out, mm. and I, I found that transformation of that character or that revelation of that character really, um, really interesting.
1: Yeah,
0: he does get real scary because he's like fumbling. Yeah cooks you breakfast, putters around the house guy and then all of a sudden you're like, oh no, like (laughs) super malicious. He's trying to like Probably push us off this ladder.
1: Yeah, and then they drop the book on his head. Before that, we have the scene where Morton Isabel... Well, she reveals what's going on with her, which is that she's really depressed because she's been 16 for 35 years and all she's got to experience life is reading the lives of other people who are much more interesting. Having <laughs> who more...
2: inevitably die at the end. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah every book has a sad yeah. ending. Yeah. You know? Well, I
1: guess it doesn't have to have a sad ending. Like it's Not every death is sad, but it's still depressing. <laughs> and he kind of confesses to her but she's not really listening and mm. he kind of gets away with it and then they become a team kind of out of necessity mm. and she's very sympathetic to him i love that scene where they're just insulting each other mm. do we buy their chemistry in a way that we don't buy Morton and kelly
0: i buy them more as a couple but i also can't check the feeling it's oh you're there you'll do <laughs> Yeah, like as well, because mm. if either of them had been any more
2: people, then it would not have. I really felt that. Yeah, there's a kind of brother sister thing that happens there as well. I mean, that ban- that that insulting each other that is very sibling <laughs> kind of. But I mean, I mean, you know, some some relationships sort of develop out of this sort of antagonistic kind of thing. But I think I think it takes them a little while to warm up to each other as well. Even, like, after they've had, have gone through all of that stuff with Kelly and, you know, reality approaching and all that. At the end, you know, he says, oh, we thought about it, me and Kelly, but then we decided Which, that that wasn't right.
0: Yeah. It's kind of awful. It's like, oh, we talked yeah. about it. But you're, you're here, so you want to do, then yeah.
1: It would have been more natural for them to become friends. Mm. Like, that. they've had this moment where it's like, oh, you're a jerk, you're a jerk. And then they're like, okay, we'll we call a truce. Yeah, truce.
0: It's kind of like... Downton Abbey type things where it's like this is your really small sphere of people Mm. and you will fish from this very small pool and only this pool Mm. and people become happy because they know that that's they're a lot, but I would have kind of preferred it if it um, ended up with them all becoming like the death team, and they all like they all have a binky, and they all go out and do the do the job, and then come back and have their sitcom. But you can't always have what you want.
1: In one of the later books, is it kind of suggested that every now and then Mort would do the duty for one day, so Death could have a day off. I
0: think you're right. But Isabel would be so much better at it because she knows all the things. Yeah, true.
1: That's true. She should do it. She was I,
0: the natural successor to me, and I thought that was hinted at a little bit when she was the one who knew the nodes, and she was the one who went with more, and he's like, oh, you were, like, in my way, and she's like, oh, I've made you sandwiches and stuff, but really she's the one who know, who's steering it in a lot of ways. Yeah,
1: and there's that great line where they say, oh, does that mean you can help us do the nodes? And she's like, no, it means I can do them, and you can help me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. But th- that's sort of her one sort of shut up, I know what I'm doing moment. And then she goes back to, yeah, I'm going to ride on the back of the horse and give you sandwiches. She's not really
2: given enough chance to shine in this book, is she? And she never just never comes back really. So, you Mm. know, you don't get to see who she is. Yeah,
1: yeah. You hope that there's a lot of what she becomes in Susan, but it's never clear because Susan never really talks about them. Um, They're sort of just mentioned in passing. And her, and it's, it's implied that her relationship with death is more important and that Mort and Isabel kind of become more normal people after mm. the end of this book because that's what they really want. So they don't want to be dead people. <laughs> they don't want to live term. in limbo forever. <laughs> yeah, the reality interface is coming in and i love that he used the word interface he was a massive fan of technology so i think using a technical term like interface mm. which at the time the book was written was still quite a futuristic computery word like mm. it reminded me of the press gang episode interface <laughs> which is where they get gifted a computer with a modem in the press gang office and these Reviews of TV shows just start turning up overnight, and they're not sure who's writing them. And they find out it's the son of the guy who, you know, donated it to them, who's writing them at home and sending them in. And it's all like a bit of a weird techno mystery. Whereas now, if be just like, just check the email address, like, what are you, what are you doing? But anyway, the, the interface is closing in. Kelly's trying to get crowned. Mort shows up with Isabel just in time, but there's nothing they can do to stop it. So he just says, right, let's go. And he takes them with him which leads to the showdown at Death's place. Mm. Because Death has been summoned off uh, by the, by Albert to sort of put an end to all this nonsense. Because in the meantime, he's, and we, we should talk about what Death's been up to all this time because he's gone fishing, <laughs> according to his <laughs> note, uh, and then gone completely off track. Because what else has he been up to?
0: Partying, trying to find out what fun is, um, gambling, um, getting into a fight over gambling, drinking at a bar, being the only person left there.
1: I liked, I did like the scene where he's in the Mendadrom and he's just trying to drink all the drinks. And there's all this, it reminded me of some friends of mine in London where we found a box of old weird liqueurs and we just started drinking them. And we started tweeting about it with the hashtag inadvisable shots. And I was just like, that's what death's doing. (laughs) 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 Pick that weird one and that one and I'll drink that. And and not getting drunk until he sort of realizes he's supposed to be drunk. Mm. Yeah. So that the
0: thing weird. where he says he can be friends with this bottle. Like I I'm trying to find it. Yeah. Yeah. It's...
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I could be friends with that one. Yeah.
0: It's I, I think I could be friends with the green bottle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh
1: and then goes looking for a new job. And it's that was actually that that scene I remembered very well because that was one of the other bit parts that I played in the play was the um the guy trying to get death a new job. <laughs> yeah. Which is like incredible. Like it felt it was like a Monty Python sketch. <laughs>
0: Well, the description of what he wanted from a job, which was something nice working with cats or flowers, is just so charming. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Why doesn't he have
0: cats in death's domain?
2: Well, yes, if he can have living creatures. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: Because there are bees, right?
0: Yeah and but he can take people he so yeah. surely like a cat wouldn't mind being able to live
1: forever yeah cuz and does he ever get a cat? I don't think he ever has a pet cat he just sort of enjoys cats when he's on mm. the it is dish. yeah
2: it is referenced i think later that he like he likes cats mm. but i don't think he ever does get one and i'm mm. just
0: like why not you could have so many cats
2: oh, that image of him though later with like in the kitchen with the cats like <laughs> rolling about and he's like you know throwing the food around and being Chef
1: Extraordinaire was, was one of my favourites, I think. One of the props we had for the play was an apron with Hager's House of Ribs written on it. <laughs> and we gimmicked it, so we, which just means um, we put some press studs on the back so that it could Death could be wearing it, and he just grabs it at the front and tears it off. <laughs> and it was, like, one of my favourite moments in the whole show. It was so dramatic. There is
0: a very good image of Death being summoned by these wizards putting on a big fancy show, which they said they don't need to, and he just shows up in an apron with a kitten, which is just... <laughs> Great. <laughs> and, then the, and then when he's like death again, the, the apron catches on fire, but he gently puts the kitten on the ground and sort of like nudges it off <laughs> with his foot, which is. <laughs> and is that
1: the early scene where somebody's drowning the kittens in a barrel?
0: Yeah, and he just retrieves hmm. the sodden
2: bag of dead kittens. But doesn't he say, sometimes people make me really upset? Yeah.
1: yeah. Something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. again, really early. Mm. Like, he's got emotions, guys. <laughs> He seems very happy. And it's not until he's called back by Albert and Albert says, everything's going to shit <laughs> like because this boy has screwed up the job that he's like, I'm really angry now. And again, it's an emotional response. Mm. And his, his, even his eyes turn from little tiny blue stars to little tiny red stars. And that leads to their massive showdown at Death's Place.
2: I didn't really like it um, as, a, as an ending. I, I mean, you know, when you're in theatre and you've got anyone who knows what they're doing in charge of what you're doing, and they say don't do any ballet and do as little fighting as possible because it always looks bad. This showdown just didn't really land for me. Like, I maybe it felt like too big of a shift for those characters to then be so angry at each other.
0: Yeah.
1: I felt death, obviously had a very good reason to be angry with Mort. Mm. He doesn't say it, but it's very much that you had one job kind <laughs> of moment. Like just when somebody dies, you swing the sword, job over. And you didn't do it. Why did you not do it? Whereas Mort, I mean, he does have things to be angry about, which is that, you know, he didn't really explain to Mort what would happen to him if he took on the job. But that doesn't seem to be what he's really angry about. He's just angry about not being called Mort. And you're like, are you a... I don't like you in this moment.
0: (laughs) Surely he could have just quit. He'd be like, you didn't tell me the ins and outs of this job, so I'm not going to be your apprentice anymore with no need for the jewel. But he was fighting for the souls of the people he brought with him, so I guess there was that Mm. as well. In terms of his own motivations, that's a bit confusing, but it did seem like a lot of it was to save the lives of these people who should be. Dead. I just hate to be so pragmatic about it, but I just kind of was like, "Oh yeah, Kelly should have died, and everything should have just gone back to the way it was." Because during their duel, they messed up way more things.
2: Yeah, all those all those hourglasses that got smashed along the way, right? Like,
0: yeah, I'm like you're compounding the situation. And yet this isn't really a thing. Like, I liked, the, I I really liked the whole sort of thing where um one would be smashed, and then it cuts away to what the consequence is. I really enjoyed reading that. And yeah, it's, that was great. Yeah. So in terms of As a reader, I love that. In terms of plot, I was kind of like, but you're making things worse. And isn't this kind of what the problem is? Like, this is why you're fighting to begin with?
1: I also enjoyed that scene Mm. a lot. And it's interesting because in the play, you're talking about don't end with a, you know, don't have a sword fight. It, this was the hardest part of the play to stage. Yeah, I can imagine. Because yeah. you've got like Death fighting with a scythe and Mort fighting with a sword. And you're like, well, this is, uh, how do we make this look good? And it doesn't cut away in the play. You can't cut away to all these other things happening across the disc worlds. Pratchett writes really cinematically. His mm. books all have the pacing of a film. And it also harkens back to a lot of the things that come through in Mort's story where he wants to be the archetypal fantasy hero but he's just not, and those stories always end with a big duel with the villain, and mm-hmm. there isn't really a villain here, yet there's got to be this big fight scene at the end. It's like your Conan book or something, you know, and then Death's like, oh, I'll just fix everything.
2: I sort of feel like I maybe maybe Pratchett got to the end of it and was like, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have to, have to resolve this somehow. Maybe it's not going to be entirely coherent, but, of course, you know, if if, like, Death's, you know, cheated reality once, he can... Um, do it again. And then there is a point where he says even the gods answer to me. But I think what annoys me about it is the characterization. Like, even though he's death, he's also been such a lovable character from the beginning Mm. and then he becomes this, like, specter of doom. Death's eyes fled until it filled Mort's vision and the sound of his laughter rattled the universe. Like, that's a really terrifying image, but I feel like it just doesn't accord with the character that we've gotten to know throughout the book. And uh, maybe that's why it sort of – Because he flicks a switch and it's completely – different
1: yeah and it's not supposed to be like horrendous laughter either it's meant to be kind of like at the end of a se- episode of a sitcom mm. where someone says the thing and there's this all this tension and someone says a stupid joke and suddenly the tension is broken and everybody laughs like it's mm. that sort of moment but it's not written like that no mm. and then it cuts to and now everything's fine mm. and hey Morton Bell getting married mm. and Cutwell and Kelly are a thing
0: it's implied that she's already pregnant as well because he's inviting death to the christening and That's all right. of that. So like-
1: yeah, well, it's clearly some time has passed. Like, they're not instantly getting married, you would hope. But it's not clear. Yeah. It's a bit – and I, it's so short. Like, it's like, you know well, it's too I,
0: neat. I kind of assume that they did instantly get married because like Mort's about sixteen, right? Mm. And I know that they say at the end the mathematics isn't quite right because he just turned the hourglass over, so you can almost figure out exactly when he's going to die. It's like medieval sort of thing; like that's normal, I guess. That they would get married around that age.
1: Well, that's true because he's
0: off in the workforce. Like she's, yeah, yeah. she's technically like was it fifty something? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true.
2: Doesn't look a day over sixteen though. <laughs> I do think
0: that not that much time has passed maybe a matter of months but
1: yeah I mean I, the other thing that bothered me at the end is Cutwell and Kelly because mm. throughout the book when I was reading it anytime he was talking about her or there was his sort of internal monologue with his feelings about her he just comes across as a total creep he's real yeah, pervy he isn't he yeah. yeah he's really having a perv and it's sort of intimated that wizards don't do it because that's to do with their magical well, powers they make a joke about that they, okay. they do and then it, but the very next book that we read without giving it away too much kind of suggests that that's not the reason that they don't do it uh, they don't do it because if they do then you might get something that you don't want that was very fake but <laughs> I'm <trying> to, I'm <laughs> to give away the next book but even if he's not a very good wizard he still is a wizard like it's very clear in the book that he, he might be unconventional and he might be a bit crap at the actual casting spells part but he's definitely a wizard because he can see death he can see things for what they really are Um, he understands magical theory and can do things like, you know, telling the future and stuff like that. So he is a real wizard.
0: Does he actually do, like, because I know he tells the fortunes, but does he actually do any magic that doesn't, because like.
1: He does cast a few spells.
0: Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was going to say, maybe he's a squib. Like maybe he knows, maybe he knows all the theory, but maybe he can't actually do magic at all, and that's why.
1: Yeah, no, well he does, but he does do spells. Like cause you remember, he, he casts the spell on the sprouts to turn them into strawberries, that's but true, they still right? taste yeah, like yeah. sprouts. And he he does do a fire lighting spell, and it kind of burns his fingers. Like he he's he not can very do magic. good with it. he's yeah. almost a squib.
0: Like as you know, Phil sends away for that really. There's that really sad scene in Harry Potter where you where they see the letters on his desk, where you're like trying to learn magic by correspondence for squibs. And so, like maybe you can do little spells and things. So I kind of was like, maybe that's why he's got a terrible sprout strawberry spell because that's exactly what you get from a mail order spell book. Does make sense? Yeah, yeah. Like sprinkle the magic powder on. You don't need magic yourself. It'll do it for you. And that is Elizabeth Flux's theory of Cutwell being a squib. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm, look, I'm on board with it. Uh, Blended mythology. It's, yeah. like <laughs> <laughs> it's delightful.
0: Maybe he leaves and becomes Filch. Like, who knows?
1: That
2: is a, that is Maybe a weird Maybe it's a cross dissatisfying over. relationship. And so he's like, you know.
0: Or Like, maybe he has to watch her be married for political reasons because he's not her husband or anything like that. He's master of the bedchamber.
1: Yeah, which is yeah. a weird title to yeah, have. And presumably she's going to... I mean, if she's going to stay queen, presumably she's going to have to get married and have children to continue the royal line. Maybe yeah. there's
2: a very kind of dominating... Like, one of them has a very dominating personality in regards to their relationship. And so there's, you know... Yeah.
1: I, well, seems clear. <laughs> cases, actually. So I know what fan
2: fiction I'm going to be writing when I go <laughs>
1: Um, surely it's already out there, but, but I would still like to see your version. The, yeah. so, but these are characters that we never see again. Mm. So we, we have this conclusion. I felt like when I read it again and I got to the end, I feel like it's almost like you're promising that we're going to see them again. A little, a little bit. Um, and it's weird that we never see Mort or Isabel or Kelly or Cutwell again, but we do see the consequences of this decision that death has made in the, his granddaughter Susan mm. and it's that it's weird is it a bit weird or is that just me
0: no I, I I see where you're coming from but I also because you know how it ends with him being given his book and he's reading reading it as though it's it, and the book and the book itself is called Mort that we're reading I kind of thought that's the end of us seeing him because mm. we are finishing his book so it makes sense to me that we don't see him again because once you finish reading Mort his book is done his life book
1: yeah and maybe I'm just reading too much into death's final lines where he says you know he doesn't like to say goodbye he prefers au revoir and I'm like well that usually traditionally means you're going to see someone again so are you going to see him again
2: well death is going to see him again Mm. well that's true so
1: yeah death doesn't
2: know what's going to happen Exactly.
1: Yeah, well I don't I don't think he does know what's going to happen and I think particularly in this situation where he's asked the gods to change fate and also I don't think he goes around reading the books. It's implied he has to sit down and do the maths to mm. figure out which deaths he has to attend. So I think Also he the books know.
2: the books are being written as somebody's living their life. Mm. So he can't know necessarily what's going to happen in the future because it hasn't been written yet. Yeah. Literally.
1: Although he does know, I mean, and this again is where there's a little inconsistency that Mm. serves the plot, because he does know in advance where and when people are going to die. I mean, one of my favourite lines in the whole book is when he asks Mort, do you know where the Bay of Manti is? There's a massive shipwreck there. Or there will be, if I can find the damn place. (laughs) I mean, that is hilarious. But it also shows that he knows... That that's going to be there. That's going to happen.
0: Oh, he's got the metadata, but he hasn't got the actual, like. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, okay. Yeah.
2: Well, the uh, witches know when they're going to die, too. They know the time. They that's know the time. True. So, it's the privilege
1: of being a witch.
2: Yeah. So he's got the,
0: the skeleton knowledge. <laughs>
2: they're hooked into something. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they just get memos sent from the gods. Hmm. And it's like this and there, this, these are the coordinates. As a side point, death
0: is a real bleak life because like death comes at the end of a life, but he is apparently going to just exist for eternity and every day is the same. He wakes up, he does the nodes, he harvests souls, he comes back, he probably doesn't sleep because he has the whole thing. It's just the same thing every day with no end in sight. So it's amazing that, I mean, it seems like it's taken 2000 years for him to kind of be like, hmm, not sure I like this.
1: I think that's the influence of having people around him. Mm. And I think Albert had a minor effect on him over those 2,000 years because of the kind of person he is. He's not very friendly or mm. emotional. But then that has had enough of effect on him during those 2,000 years that 35 years ago he decided, well, maybe I need another person who's a bit more emotional because I'm trying to, I'm kind of getting the hang of this, but I don't really know. And that's when he takes Isabel. And she's so much more emotional that it only takes a few decades of her being around him to influence him to the point where he's like, I'm really sad about this. Also, maybe this isn't fair to her. I should get an apprentice in. Maybe that can solve the problem. And I, and I kind of feel like that's where that's come from. And he's sort of picked up these emotions, not by having glands, but kind of like osmosis. Mm-hmm. Like he's been immersed in this bath of emotions and now they've <laughs> made their way across the semi-permeable membrane into his skull. You know, yeah. There's still a few things we haven't talked about I'd like to touch on at least a little bit. One of which is I was really surprised how much Clatch features in this book. You think about the Discworld as having all these kind of places that are archetypes for things. Mm. Like Ankh-Morpork is the archetype of the big European city. It's very clearly largely based on London, but there's other stuff in there as well. And then there's Clatch, which I always thought had a bit more of a specific identity, but then you read this book and it's very much the catch-all foreigner kind of place, which is a bit weird. And comes across not entirely
2: okay. This I, I agree with you. I I've sort of a couple of times when I was reading it's like, ooh, that's a slight stereotype that I'm not quite comfortable with. It's difficult to write caricatures in a way that's not going to reference those nasty stereotypes and I sort of feel like he hasn't quite nailed how to do that yet.
1: Yeah, mm. I mean, it does feel like he goes out of his way to make the clutching characters that we meet quite interesting mm. and, or at least a bit more fleshed out than yeah. you know, I've got three words to say. It's this weird blending of different ideas of foreign... Mm. that's where curry comes from but it's also where people get their hands cut off if they're thieves you know there's all these different weird bits of knowledge that have just come to them through the stereotypes in the culture
0: so it's kind of like a clatch all for foreigners <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes it is uh it absolutely is nice one Hunt of the day oh is there anything else we haven't said
0: i did have one thing that i wanted to mention about the reality aspect that was mentioned throughout the book like which is a big theme of it and it seemed to me time and time again that the idea of wikiality like truth by consensus came up over and over because there is no real truth in the book it's just the one that the most people agree on is the one that's accepted so that's why people can't see death very often because they don't want to mm. that's why mort can um, put his arms through things if he doesn't know that they're there because he doesn't accept them as real and i just found that a really interesting aspect mm. of the book about reality. It was kind of Philip K. Dickish in a way, which yeah. is a terrible way to phrase that. But, um,
1: <laughs> um well, I don't know. Because I think there's also the, the counterpoint to that is that most people have no reason to think that Kelly is dead mm. because she hasn't actually died, but they will believe it because that's what fate says is supposed to happen. Mm. So that is a truth that is supposed to be true.
2: It does sort of suggest that reality is not concrete like it's flexible it's permeable it's porous Mm. so you know Mort can throw his hand through a wall accidentally because he doesn't recognize it as real but at the same time the reality that is the momentum of the world in totality is very strong so it will push people towards you know believing that Kelly is dead even though she's standing in front of them you know so I, I kind of feel like there are forces that are stronger than others that come into play there too yeah, There's there's pillars
0: that need to be there, but the details kind of get lost. Mm. People are happy to ignore the truth of details to see the bigger picture.
1: We do like to try and pick our favorite footnotes from the book.
0: I really liked the one about how time is measured through kings. So the guy behind the theory reasons like this. You can't have more than one king, and tradition demands that there is no gap between kings. So when a king dies, the succession must therefore pass to the air instantaneously. Presumably, he said, there must be some elementary particles, kingons or possibly cleons, that do this job. But of course the session sometimes fails if mid-flight they strike an antiparticle or a republicon. So his ambitious plans to use this discovery to send messages involving the careful torturing of a small king in order to modulate the signal were never fully expounded because at that point the bar closed. <laughs>
1: So I just love. Them. It shows a great insight to how physics works. Um, I really like. this is a very brief footnote, but I really like the one about what happens in people's pantries. Any domestic food store raided furtively in the middle of the night. <laughs> Always contains, no matter what its daytime inventory, half a jar of elderly mayonnaise, a piece of very old cheese, and a tomato with white mould growing on it. (laughs) It reminded me, I think it's in Good Omens, where they talk about the fact that any cassette tape left in a car glove compartment will morph into Queen's Greatest Hits. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what we always have in the glove box. Um, Did you have one, Stephanie?
2: I did, even briefer. Ankh-Morpork had dallied with many forms of government and had ended up with that form of democracy known as one man, one vote. The patrician was the man, he had the vote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great.
1: Which, and it, again, it sort of insinuates that this is not the patrician we come to know and love because he's, I mean, certainly he's in charge, but he's not as autocratic as that. He sort of persuades people to do what he wants them to do.
2: A, I don't think, yeah. he, the, the patrician himself doesn't have a character yet either, does mm. he? He's yeah. like... Just got a dragon. Yeah, <laughs> he's just got a swamp dragon.
1: <laughs> well, it's very definitely a theory that it's not the same guy, that mm. it's a different patrician altogether.
2: Can I mention my favourite quote? Please, oh, yeah, please do. do. So it's, it's one that I always come back to and have for years and I couldn't find where it had originally been written even though I knew it was a Pratchett quote. Um, but when I opened the first page of this book, I was like, it's here. So scientists have calculated that the chance of anything so patently absurd actually existing are millions to one. But magicians have calculated that million to one chances crop up nine times out of ten. Yeah. I think that's, it's one of those things that just feels instinctively true, even though it's so, yeah, absurd.
1: I like it on a number of levels, not least of which because humans are really bad at understanding how probability works. <laughs> and it's something that he comes back to, uses that mm. same idea in Guards, Guards. Uh, what have people been asking us? So,
0: one from Andrews Russell is, what kind of curry do you think they have on the disc? Is Ankh-Morpork curry a faithful reproduction or a shoddy knockoff?
1: Well, I think in the same way that Clatch is clearly a Clatch-all, as you said earlier, <laughs> for all different sort of foreign, in inverted commas, cultures, I think they must have all the different kinds of curry.
0: I kind of had a horrifying vision of Loxar made out of Ankh-water, because... <laughs> I have had a horrible laksa once that was kind of the texture that I imagined. And I know in the last podcast I also talked about drinking from the ankh and it seems like it's a fixation of mine, but I just can't stop imagining it. So like a horribly viscous laksa that's been interpreted through interpreted through interpreted. So it's nothing like the original, but it's ended up as like the ankh pork version of a laksa. I think all of their curries would eventually devolve into something Homogeneous.
2: I reckon also it would depend on who was serving it to whom. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I, I think I remember one of them. Is it maybe it's in one of the guards books where Colin wants curry with sultanas in it because <laughs> doesn't curry have sultanas in it? That seems to me to be a bastardization of curry. But um, I sort of feel like that's what they would give to somebody like the bumbling white guy.
1: Yeah, and I think if you're buying curry in more Moorpork, mostly you would get that kind of
2: Western Acceptable
1: version, but then you probably also could get the real stuff. Yeah, if you yeah know where to go. absolutely. Yeah,
0: Down some of the streets, you get a really good one, but if you were just a general person wanting curry, you'd probably get, you know how you go to the fish and chip shop and they also have curry on the menu, so you get yeah. that. It <laughs> also tastes vaguely of fish and chips and also of just fried. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, it's like, it's, interestingly, that reminds me that in Hager's House of Ribs, one of the things on the menu is Troll Burger. Ooh. And I'm like, is it made out of trolls? Is it for For trolls? Yeah. Does it have shale in it? Like, what
3: What is it?
0: Um, So there's another one from Michael Hall. That is, do you think Terry writes better heroines than male heroes?
2: It's possible that he doesn't write very good young women. Like, Granny Weatherwax is amazing as a character. Which is also a character with a lot of life experience and a lot of wisdom and I suspect possibly it's easier to get to know that kind of character than it is to get to know a naive girl. I feel like he, he can write really great heroines as well as really great heroes. I mean, like, Vimes is an amazing hero, mm. you know. But I, I feel like he didn't really kind of nail it until he got to Tiffany. I feel like she kind of is a fully rounded character with, with all the complexities that come along with that. Taking aside the genders
0: of his characters, I think he writes progressively better people mm. as the series go along. Like, mm. there's—I would argue that no one is really a hero. They're mostly complex people that have failures and problems, mm. and he gets better at writing the complexities of people as the series goes along. So, like Vimes is so good because he's so flawed, and and then we get to monstrous regiment, which is like, yeah. So that's
1: yeah. Well, it, and interestingly, the early books in particular. All of his protagonists are explicitly anti-heroes. Mm. Like Rincewind is not a hero and neither is Two Flower. The sort of most traditional hero you get in those early books is Cohen, the barbarian. Mm. and He is that, but he's also a parody of that. And then, you know, you get Granny Weswax, who kind of doesn't really want to do this job, but sees it as the right thing to do. And then Mort is in no way a traditional mm. hero, but he wants to be. He's just not up to the task.
0: Yeah. They're complex, which is what I like. This one from Deirdre that is... May we please have your best attempts at least pronouncing a row of dashes, as in in the scene where in the shades they're chasing down Mort.
1: Oh, yeah. We all replaced that with an actual swear word, I think, when we were reading it, surely.
0: I was actually imagining like emphatic facial expressions, which I know is not what he was going for, but like,
2: you know, like a pointed look.
1: It, it's pretty clear from context what word it is. There's which a- page are we on? Uh, this is on page 63.
2: Ah, uh, yes, I think it is pretty obvious what the word is intended to
1: be. Yeah. But
0: you know how Carrot pronounces "damn" with an asterisk instead of a <laughs> A? So he's, he's saying that somehow. So maybe these people are saying the dashes.
1: Well, I'm happy to give it a go. Right. Are you ready? Well, me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ing wizard, I hate ingwizards. But I feel, like, feel like that was very saying. good. I it thought was the first good. bit was pretty good. It but it, like it's almost like like you swallowed the word. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have to make it. It's a weird thing. You have to make a noise to indicate that you're not making a noise for everybody who is listening and not looking at Ben right now. He did
2: kind of also tilt his chin in a strange way every time he <laughs> said he did, or not say it. an emphatic look. In fact, <laughs> yes. don't give away all my voiceover secrets.
1: <laughs> but yeah, I think it harks back to that famous thing about how versatile the word that is clearly being not said is with all the different ways you can use it
0: and our last question is from darren Lochner. so if mort was a movie either animated or real who would you cast as the main characters
2: i have a mort oh. eddie redmayne oh, oh yeah that'd be
1: very good he's a little bit old now but i think yeah uh,
0: he... i reckon i think he could do it He could do it yeah make could happen
1: he, yeah that makes i would totally buy that that's genius
0: Yeah, all of mine have gone out of my head. That's it just works too well. (laughs) You can't have Rupert Grint because he's been Ron Weasley.
2: Also he's not gangly enough. He doesn't have that look like Eddie Red he's got those cheekbones Mm. that were just like you could see progressively over the over the film and they just get sunken and sunken and And that's the
0: red hair. And the beaming youthful like he's got a sort of freshness to him. Yeah, well what
1: about the rest of them though? That is genius. Can we can we build a cast around Eddie Redmayne Great. As Mort.
0: Have you seen that episode of Buffy, Hush, where there is no dialogue for the mm. bulk of it? They get mimes to come in and play the, the gentleman, and the main one, for death, I kind of want like a body actor and a voice actor to yeah. be a composite role, so I kind of think a mime would be good for him. Oh, yeah. Preferably the one from Hush, whose name I do not know, unfortunately.
2: And then who so. for the voice? Alan Rickman. I mean, I know yeah. he's not with us anymore, but...
0: Christopher Lee would have been good, but he's <laughs> oh, also... yeah Yeah. yeah. Because he
2: it to be actually,
1: Lee.
0: it could have just been Christopher Lee <laughs> doing all of it because he's got the stature and the, all of it, and you can see him just cradling a kitten. While...
1: <laughs> and he would be so good at the sword fight at the end. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love Christopher Lee! So Wasn't much. he
0: actually a spy during one of the wars? Yes. Yeah.
1: Oh my God, he's was amazing.
0: <laughs> no, I rescind it. I've, I've Christopher Lee just overtaken. All of the mimes. Well, Chris
1: Philly, right. in fact, did play the voice of death.
0: Okay, well, good. Yeah, I think, it, <laughs> in, was it Hogfather? In uh, no, no, in the animated ones. And he's very good. For Kelly, I would probably get um Troianne Bellisario. um She's probably best known for Pretty Little Liars, the, the show that went for ages and tied up all its plot holes in the last six episodes. But she played Spencer, this character that was quite sort of proper but had a edge to her, and I think she'd be very good.
2: What about Isabel? Maybe Chalene Woodley. She's in the fall. She does naive really well, I think.
0: She was Caitlyn Cooper on the OC. Oh, was she? Yeah. But they had two Caitlin Coopers. Oh, so okay. she could have been the very little one.
3: I'm not
1: sure. Yeah. I'm just not, I'm just not as familiar with anything that stars young people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, who's your favourite acting horse to play Binky? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, no, the one who played Bucephalus in Terry Gilliam's film of The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. I, um, can't <laughs> I, know, I
2: can't believe you already had an horse. Yeah, I can't believe I actually knew a horse. That's very good. That you could bring into that conversation. God,
1: it's just such a beautiful white horse. Perfect for the role.
0: See, I went sea biscuit, sea biscuit, sea biscuit. <laughs> I couldn't get away from it.
2: <laughs> what about um, for Cutwell?
1: Oh, it, it's the kind of role that you could see them giving Jack Black, but I don't know that he's uh, quite right for it. He's a bit too old for it now. He'd
2: totally do the slob part well. Yeah. He does that. He does that
1: kind of like he does that sort of I don't really know what I'm doing kind of thing quite well as well. But he's not, it feels weird to cast Americans.
0: Maybe Bill Bailey as
1: Albert. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, I could dig that. And he's got, he put the gloves on, the little glasses. Oh, yeah. He'd be great.
0: Yeah. And him making that monstrous hat out of carpet, like to go back to.
1: Although could he do the scary Albert?
0: I reckon he could pull it off. I reckon he can flick a switch. He just hasn't had a role where we can see that Mm. yet. I think he could do it.
1: So that brings us to the end of this episode of Pratt Chat. But before we go, we do need to tell you what book we're reading next time. Uh, Liz, would you like to tell the listeners?
0: It's going to be Sorcery.
1: The fifth book in the series, The Return of Rincewind. Of course, the first book we'll be reading in our podcast that features him. So I'm very excited. And I'm also very excited because joining us again will be Cal Wilson. That was her first Discord book and the one closest to her heart. So, of course, we had to have her back for that. Uh, But let's thank our current guest. Thank you, Stephanie, so much for discussing Mort with us.
2: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: And if people want to follow you online and read your writings, uh, where can they find you?
2: Uh, The best place to find me is on Twitter. My handle is GingerAndHoney with no spaces or dashes or anything like that. GingerAndHoney.
1: Which is an excellent combination. Mm. Thanks, listeners, for spending a small portion of your hourglass listening to us. And remember to send us any comments, feedback, or questions for our next episode. We'd love to hear from you. And until then, goodbye. Or, as we prefer to say, au revoir. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast, hosted by Elizabeth Flux and me, Ben McKenzie. This month's guest Pratchatter was Stephanie Confrey. Pratchat is produced and edited by me. Music and sound effects by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. Find us online at Pratchatpodcast.com or on Twitter at Pratchatpodcast. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast, Splendid Chaps, and time travel comedy series, Night Paris. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.